Hello, I'm Anton Strasberg from TalkShoe.com. The mini-series Mean Streets of Toronto was produced by TalkShoe and Dundurn Press, and it was actually released just before the Canadian Fan Expo was held at the Toronto Convention Centre in downtown Toronto. As a way to introduce this series, as well as having a free-flowing conversation about true crime, Dundurn Press put on a panel discussion hosted by Richard Krauss about the authors and the novels involved in this podcast. In the panel were authors Nate Henley, Lorna Poplak, and Slava Pastuk. We hope you enjoy. Thank you, Chris, and thank you all for uh, coming. It's so great to see people uh, in person again. It's been a long time at Fan Expo since we've actually had uh, real bums and real seats. So it's a, a pleasure to see you all. Um, I'm going to kind of set the stage uh, a little bit here with a reading from Lorna Poplack. Um, we're talking about Toronto. We're talking about true crime in Toronto. And she has uh, a reading from her book that kind of sets the stage a little bit for what you're about to hear. when I find the place. Yeah. Aha. Uh, hello, um, I'm Lorna Poplack. Uh, this is my book, The Don. And I thought this would be a useful introduction because the name of our panel is The Mean Streets of Toronto. So this really is, is quite appropriate, as, as you'll see once I get to the end of about paragraph two. Uh, it's, it's, it's got masks in it. It's got mean streets, and it's got really mean guys. So I'm not going to set it up any further than that. But this is chapter 15 from the book that I'm going to read to you, uh, an excerpt from this, and it's called The Polka Dot Gang. Uh, can everybody hear me okay? Okay. In the spring and summer of 1945, tucked in among news stories about the end of the war in Europe, the return of soldiers, and the ongoing bloody conflict with Japan, Reports started surfacing about a series of shockingly violent crimes in the peaceable province of Ontario. Beneath the headline, Crime Wave, Southern Ontario is Hard Hit, the Globe and Mail reported that one of the most troubling aspects of a seemingly homegrown spree was the appearance of a new weapon. Ontario, for the first time, has to contend with the machine gun in crime, not the noisy, cumbersome Thompson, Tommy Gun, of the motion pictures and Chicago ill, but the handy Sten gun built right here in Toronto. And the fanciest exponents of these guns were the members of the newly formed Polka Dot Gang, who sported natty red Polka Dot handkerchiefs to conceal their faces when on a job. The Polka Dots specialized in holding up, robbing, and brutally beating watchmen before smashing open or carrying away the safes they were guarding. Working at night, they chose their targets carefully. They hit companies such as dairies, packing plants, and flour mills, where there was sure to be a coffer stuffed with cash or war bonds that could easily be offloaded on the black market. After several very successful heists in small southern Ontario <laughs> cities, the gang decided that it was time to hit the big time. In August, an attempt to rob a garage on Toronto's Dufferin Street was averted by a policeman. After firing at the officer, the thugs got away in a car. In September, they raided a milling company on DuPont Street with greater success and made off with $1,200. The night watchman spent two weeks in hospital recovering from a severe battering. 
Their next job was an abortive robbery at a Dufferin Street dairy that was interrupted by what they thought was an alarm, but was actually just a telephone ringing. As they fled in panic, their getaway car nearly collided with the truck of an employee coming into work early. They greeted the man with a burst of bad-tempered machine gun fire. Fortunately for him, they missed. In spite of a few more excellent results in and outside Toronto, the luck of the Polkadot gang was soon to run out. On October the 27th, under the banner, Seven Car Dragnet Grabs Polkadot Suspects, the Toronto Daily Star described the exciting 50-mile-an-hour, three-quarter-mile chase through Toronto traffic and the arrest of five suspects who gave no trouble at all, according to one of the arresting officers. The men being held at the Toronto jail, all aged 30 or under, were Kenneth Budger Green, Bruce Kay, George Constantine, George Dobby, and Hubert Hiscox. Although the membership of the gang seemed to be fairly fluid, these five were regarded as the hardcore, and their leader, described by victims and witnesses as a dark-haired, six-foot-tall man with expensive tastes in clothing, was undoubtedly Kenneth Green. Thank you for that. It paints a vivid picture of one era of, of crime uh, on the mean streets of Toronto. Um, Nate, tell us a little bit about uh, the early 60s in Toronto. We'll jump ahead a few years. Uh, and the, the, the crime climate there around the time of your story, The Beetle Bandit. Uh, I'm the author of Can You Hear Me? Yes, if he, I'm going to, is this mic on? Is this mic on? There you go. Ah, techie, techie. <laughs> uh, I'm the author of The Beetle Bandit, and um, it concerns a uh, troubled young man who served in the Royal Canadian Navy, and then in the early 60s decided to start robbing banks in the Toronto area to fund a one-man revolution and this revolution had no real goals other than overthrowing the government and replacing it with what it was unclear. Toronto at the time was a relatively peaceful city. Uh, we still had the death penalty. It wasn't enforced very often, but it was still present. And bank robberies were not a very common thing. So Matthew Carey Smith, the name of the bank robber, stirred up quite a lot of attention and was most notorious for the robbery he committed July 24, 1964, in North York. I'm including that as part of Toronto, because it is part of Toronto now. Back then, it was his own community. And he disguised himself, uh, interestingly. He wore a beetle wig, and uh, this was sort of all the rage at the time. You know, the Beatles were sort of the big new pop group that exploded on the charts. And retailers were selling these long-haired wigs, you know, look like the Beatles, you too. So he put one of these on, and he also wore a Halloween mask resembling French President Charles de Gaulle and sunglasses. And he walked to a bank. He put had an FN semi-automatic rifle, which is a very nasty weapon, the variation of which the Canadian Army used. He disguised it in a guitar case. And... Um, painted the barrel pink because the barrel stuck out of the case, so he decided to paint it pink so no one would suspect it was a weapon. Went into the bank, 
robbed the bank. People at first thought it was just some silly prank. He quickly uh, told them it was serious by shooting at the wall. And as he made his escape, a bank patron named Jack Blank uh, intervened. And Jack was a veteran of both the Canadian Army and the Israeli armies, a bit of a hothead. At the time, Canadian banks stocked revolvers, and the staff were expected to use them. And I actually, during my research, found plenty of stories where bank staff had shot at bank robbers. This was just part of, and I met, I've talked since to elderly people who worked in banks. They're like, oh yeah, we had a 38 caliber, you know, well beyond revolver in the drawer and blah, blah, blah. So Jack Blank seizes a revolver from an accountant and runs after the Beetle Bandit. And they start shooting it out on the street. And the Beetle Bandit has an FN semi-automatic rifle, which is a military weapon. Jack Blank has a revolver. They're 70 feet apart. Jack Blank fires four rounds, and then he's out of ammunition because he didn't realize the accountant who stored the revolvers underloaded it. It's an old trick that you underload a revolver so if it falls on the floor, the hammer won't hit a live round. Jack did not know this. He didn't know it only had four bullets, not six, and the Beetle Bandit shot him in the head and killed him and then managed to make it make his escape. Needless to say, this became headline news across the country, and he was dubbed the Beetle Bandit because of his attire. There's one uh, detail here that I love that I don't think you mentioned, that he was wearing a T-shirt from a local radio yes. station that said, C-K-E-Y, good guys, which I think yes. is a pretty, uh, a pretty salient detail. Um, Slava, your story is a little different. Here you're coming at this from... Uh, it's true crime, but you're the subject. The criminal. The criminal. Say, you yeah. are the criminal yeah. uh, involved in this. So set the stage for us, again, and this is, uh, again, another era mm -hmm. uh, in, in Toronto. Tell us uh, the beginnings of your story. Okay. So 20, 2010, 2011, I moved down into the city with the intent, uh, from Barrie originally. I don't know if anyone here is from Barrie, but you know where it is. I moved down to Toronto with the intention of pursuing this career in journalism. Trying to be like my man Richard over here, and um, I end up being a music journalist. I realized pretty quickly that there's a ceiling with how much you can really get into. Uh, I had been building out my network at Vice for a few years, and I do stumble upon these guys who are running this operation, smuggling cocaine into Australia. I go, well, that sounds interesting. Let me go do that. I take a trip to Australia. I bring some cocaine. Uh, my friend brings some cocaine. Uh, we come back. Some other people get informed about the situation. They take a trip. Uh, their trip doesn't go the way ours does, uh, that is to say, successfully. They find themselves in jail. Uh, as a result, I find myself in jail here. I actually just got out three months ago. Uh, I was in jail for two and a half years, and I uh, came out in April of this year. I wrote the book while I was in jail, and my understanding of crime now is a little different because... Well, actually, funny enough, I met some people in jail who were in the Dirty Tricks gangs, who you guys may have heard of. They're not... They're probably around the same time frame as the polka dot gang we just heard of. But um, because of that, I do have kind of a, a different angle that I come to the subject uh, with. But my book is primarily about uh, trying to do things to impress the wrong people and uh, finding yourself in a sticky situation as a result. We'll talk more about your time in prison because it, it, just from our conversation uh, outside here, just before we started the panel, it's much different 
a much different experience than you might think. It's not like Oz or one of those other uh, television shows we've seen. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Lorna, I want to come back to you. Um, you've written a book about the Don Jail. When it was opened, it was called A Palace for Prisoners, but it never lived up to its promise. Uh, anyone who knows anything about the Don knows that's true. Uh, what happened? Well, there were actually two Don Jails. Um, the main focus of my book is the original Don Jail. As you can see from the, the cover of the book, it's the the building that still exists today at the corner of Gerard Street and Broadview. And when it was originally conceived, it was um, it was based on the most progressive uh, philosophical, penal philosophical, and architectural principles of the time. It ended up, uh, it was a long story, but it ended up based on the Auburn system, the prison system. And all of this went back to the, uh, to the teachings and, and the writings of John Howard, who um, investigated prisons of his time in Britain in the late 1700s. He found them terrible, and he suggested all sorts of improvements. So these improvements were supposed to be incorporated into the jail, and um, they were. It was based on the Auburn system, but the unfortunate thing was that the system was not really functional because the cells were, were what was supposed to happen was that people were supposed to be in the cells for a short time at night and then be working on the fields and uh, sort of interacting socially but not communicating, that wasn't part of the deal, uh, during the day, coming into these small cells at night and then just being there overnight and thinking about the wrong things and their wrongdoings and then sort of going out and working in the day again. But it didn't work that way because the, the cells were so small, uh, not even a meter wide, no toilet facilities, no sanitation. Uh, eventually, and very soon, I can't even say eventually, but pretty soon, the jail got overcrowded. It was built for a population of 50,000 people. By the time the 1880s came around, it opened in 1864, the city consisted of 150,000 people. It never coped. So basically, the model was flawed from the get-go, and things just deteriorated and degenerated from there. Um, there was corruption in the prison. There were, you know, the, the usual prison stuff, gangs, and, and uh, so it, it became a terrible building, and it was called, um, you know, by all and sundry, uh, the Bastille, Toronto's Bastille, some people called it, or a cesspit, or a hellhole. So the deterioration was pretty swift. And Nate, let's talk a little bit uh, about uh, Matthew Carey Smith, mm -hmm. uh, who you describe in the book as an intelligent but troubled young man. Uh, and his case fueled a national debate about guns, about capital punishment, and insanity pleas. And uh, tell us a little <laughs> bit about how sensational this case would have been uh, in the early 1960s, and what exactly the debate around the sure. insanity plea was, because there's more than one kind of insanity yes. plea, and this is kind of the case that defined that, I think. Right, right. Um, I'm going to skip some content, uh, so I'm not talking for 30 minutes, but needless to say, Matthew Carey Smith was eventually caught, and um, what happened was his lawyer... Um, had very little defense because there was multiple witnesses who saw him kill Jack Blank, which was the crime he was charged with. And so he realized the only way he could really sort of get his client off was through an insanity plea. 
And here's where things get a little granular because, well, first of all, as, as Richard noted, there's um, a couple different things that are going on here. There is, at the time, you could say my client is so insane he can't even be put in court. Like he's just so far gone. They quickly decided, no, he's, he's good enough to stand trial. So he's going to stand trial, but we can still use the insanity defense. And it won't acquit him per se, but it might prevent him from getting hanged. And at the time, if you were found not guilty by reason of insanity, it did not mean you could just walk out of court. Because what it meant was usually you'd be put into an institution, like penitanguishing, and you could be there for decades. So it was sort of a softer form of incarceration. But it became this raging battle in court of Matthew Carey Smith's mindset and his intent. And here's where things get a little bit complicated because there is a legal definition of insanity and a medical definition of insanity. And they're not 100% in sync that the definition that they used in court in 1965, which is when Matthew Carey Smith was on trial, was based on the British system. And basically it was, um, is, the, is the person charged with this crime cognizant that they did a wrong thing? Like, are they sensible enough to realize that what they did was not ethically nice or, you know, morally nice? Uh, the McNaughton rule is the sort of short term of that. And so they went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the defense brought up various doctors who said Matthew Carey Smith is schizophrenic. His mother was diagnosed with schizophrenia and was institutionalized. Matthew Carey Smith himself was diagnosed in the early 1960s with schizophrenia, but was never really given full treatment. And so there's a debate, was he schizophrenic? The prosecution said no. He's a sociopath. He knows exactly what he was doing. He ran this sort of household where he would rob banks and basically give money to his friends. He knew exactly what was going on. So it became this big debate, and that sort of became the crux of it. Um, and part of the debate was fueled uh, by Matthew Curry Smith's father, who confusingly enough was also named Matthew Smith. I called him Matt Smith just to distinguish him. He desperately waged a campaign to save his son because Matthew Carey Smith became one of the last people in Canada convicted and sentenced to hang. This is 1965, okay? And his father desperately wanted to get him, like not, a, not get him out of jail, but just prevent him from being hanged. So his father did a number of interviews with Scott Young, who was a big newspaper man at the Globe and Mail, and is the father of Neil Young, the rock star. Mm -hmm. And these editorials, again, they did not say he's innocent. They did not say, let Matthew Carey Smith free. What they said was that it's inhumane to hang a man in Canada, and this fed into a huge debate at the time. Because the liberals were in government, and basically they were just commuting every death sentence. No one had been hanged since 1962, at the Don Jail, by the way. Last hanging in Canada, double hanging, two people, 1962. And so it became this raging debate about the death penalty, bracketed with sort of in the insanity pleas, because there was concern that 
he was just faking insanity. And on the other side, they're saying it's inhumane to hang someone who is obviously psychotic and badly needs some kind of treatment. Uh, it fed into that. We still Capital punishment was officially abolished in 1976, but we still have the insanity plea, although it's been through various permutations uh, since Matthew Carey Smith's era. Slava, you say in the book that you were researching a story when you met the cartel's Canadian kingpins. Mm -hmm. You agreed to work with them mm -hmm. and and changed your life forever from that point on. I think it's probably fair to say. Um, what was your mindset at that time? What, what was going through your head? You touched on it a bit in your first uh, answer, but tell me a little bit more. Well, the culture of ICE kind of rewarded people who took risks, but I also just want to preface, I'm 32 year old, years old now. This happened when I was 24. I wouldn't do what I did then right. now. But that being said, it was presented in a way that like these guys, they all met when they were going to school in McGill. They ended up uh, meeting these connections that allowed them to traffic cocaine from South America into Las Vegas. They would recruit Canadians to go to Las Vegas, pick up a new set of luggage that had the cocaine lining the inside of the bags um, and then take that and fly it to Australia where the cocaine could be sold for a premium, maybe three or four times what you would be able to sell it at in the Western market. So like my spider sense was tingling because now we have a Canadian story tied to crime and these are young professional guys. These are kind of like, you know, books have been written about these guys now, but you know, the Wolfpack, the UN, these types of millennial mobsters, that is kind of the through line that you could talk about when it comes to true crime in Canada. It's always been people of all ethnicities coming together for one shared goal. It's just often a nefarious goal. And you say, you, I wouldn't do what I did then now. Is that a result strictly of age or prison or, or the, the way that everything worked out? What, what is it? It's a good question. I, I, I'm not sure. I just I feel like right now I wouldn't even want to pursue a, a job at Vice because that was something that blinded me being a 20-year-old coming from Barry, who just kind of had stars in his eyes. I'm able to go to Brooklyn every three months because yeah. of this job. For sure, I want to double down on that. I want to explore that to the fullest. And when I look around at my peers who are kind of advancing in that job, what are they doing? Oh, they're talking to, to ISIS terrorists or, you know, they're embedding with white nationalists. And now I've, I've stumbled upon, again, like I really did stumble upon these guys from the music scene, right? And I do explore this in the book, and I'm not sure if it was edited out, but... A lot of my entrance into the world of crime came from the world of music. Which you were covering. You, you were writing a, a great deal about for Vice. That's right. Yeah. I was the, the Toronto rap guy. And do you miss those days? <laughs> the writing about music? Yeah. You could write about music right now for free. You could open up your phone. You can go on Twitter.com yeah. and you could let everybody know what you think about an album. I yeah. feel like it's, it's uh, lessened quite a bit. I am fortunate that, you know, I've, I've met people who I looked up to in the world of music journalism as a result of that job. And that's kind of what I take from it. Not yeah. so much what I did, but who I met. Right. Lorna, tell me what the history of the Dawn Jail tells us about the evolution of Toronto. The evolution of Toronto. I would like to think that it does tell us something about the evolution of Toronto. I'm not so sure that it does. I wrote the book as an act of memory, I think. I think this was one of the, one of the things that drove me, was um, to, you know, I, when I was writing my first book, 
which was called Drop Dead, A Horrible History of Hanging in Canada, I found that the Don Jail played a, a big role in this particular story because uh, uh, people were hanged there. As Nate mentioned, the last two hangings in um, Toronto took place there, in Canada took place there in 1962. So the Don Jail was a big player in, uh, in that story. And I think that the death penalty is gone now, so that's a good thing. So I suppose that is good. But I don't really know, you know, because I'm conflicted. Because I feel that the Don Jail is, is a different edifice now. It's, um, I guess it's been turned around. It went through a heritage transformation. So from that point of view, it, it, is, um, it, it tells a story of what we lived through. So it, it does invoke memory. But, you know, when I look around to see the prisons that we have with us today, I don't know if there's been any real improvement. So I'm quite conflicted on that score. What does it tell us that it took so long to shut the dawn down? People talked about what a hellhole it was for a decade before they did really did anything about it. They basically had no alternatives. Mm. You know, I do document in the book some of the other things that they tried, some of the other institutions that were opened up. Uh, there was a Toronto Central prison, which was in the late um, eight, uh, sort of at the turn of the century, turn of the 19th century. That was even worse. You know, that was supposed to cater for men. And, uh, you know, there was all sorts of uh, sort of vile acts carried on there. The Mercer Reformatory for Women, again, you know, really an awful place. And then um, they opened up the Eastern Wing of the Don Jail in 1958 which when the Heritage Don Jail, I'll, I'll talk about the old building calling it the Heritage Don Jail, closed down, that sort of took over. But it had been running for a while. And basically, the city just couldn't cope with the number of, of criminals that there were. Or, or rather, let me not say the number of criminals, because a lot of people who were incarcerated were not really criminals. You know, some of them were just people with mental or emotional problems who were warehoused in jail. But there were criminals and uh, there was just no other alternatives. So the jail hung along for a lot longer than it should have. Nate, let's talk about some of the nuts and bolts about actually writing about true crime. Um, you, There's a quote here that I have from you. You say your books are about writing the truth using techniques borrowed from fiction, such as scene setting, dialogue, character development, and foreshadowing. How, for instance, uh, do you incorporate dialogue into a book like The Beetle Bandit? Uh, there's a fair amount of dialogue in there. Uh, this is not a work of fiction, though. So how do you work around that that conundrum, I guess? It seems sure. kind of counterintuitive. Sure. Uh, I was quite uh, trying to sound like I'm going to blow my own horn, but in... Uh, the Beetle Bandit, one thing I made clear was that all the dialogue in the book is sourced. That anytime anyone says anything, it is from either a newspaper article, a court document, a legal document. Um, Matthew Carey Smith gave a long confession to police, and I quoted from that. Um, and I would source it. I wouldn't claim that I, you know, I never spoke to Matthew Carey Smith, given that he died the year I was born. Um, I am in very much in favor of things like that, be it scene setting, uh, dialogue if possible, in true crime. I'm a bit wary, though, when 
an author tries to sort of get into the head of the killer. Like they'll say, you know, Jack the Ripper walked down the street and was feeling in a bad mood. Well, we don't even know who Jack the Ripper was, so it's a bit presumptuous to claim you're inside his head. Other times I've read um, true crime books where there's gigantic amounts of dialogue that quite clearly... It's, it's something the guy would say, but like they'll have Al Capone setting up the St. Valentine's Day right. Massacre, yeah. and they'll have three pages of dialogue. Yeah, yeah boys, you get them Tommy guns, yeah. and we're going to wipe them out. And you're like, okay, that's probably something he'd say, but if it's not from an actual source, I'd be wary of using it. So on the one hand, I'm very strongly in favor of using these techniques, and I think you know, I tried to do that in the Beatle Band, of setting up a scene, having sort of, you know, a character arc like Matthew Carey Smith. I take him from sort of childhood when he's this sort of oddball kid who, you know, has these weird mannerisms through him in the Navy, through him deciding to be a one-man revolution against the government, and all these different things. And he also along the way becomes a father and um, sort of is running a household uh, of sorts, but it's all based on sources. It's all based on facts. I'm very, like I said, I'm not very into true crime where they just sort of like uh, assume a whole bunch of things about the killer. And I think it's like there's nowhere in the book do I try to sort of get into his head other than using Matthew Curry Smith's own words. Because, you know, a number of the psychiatrists who testified basically said they couldn't get into his head, that they really didn't know what he was talking about when he wanted to overthrow the government. Uh, they didn't really know if he was being serious or this was a delusion. And I think he was quite seriously mentally ill. So um, yes, to, you know, to those techniques, but I think it has to, as a journalist, be based on some reality. Well, you also spoke to uh, the... Beetle Bandit's son, uh, the son's wife, the daughter of the Beetle Bandit's girlfriend, yep. and the son of his victims. Um, what did you uh, glean from them? Yeah, that was that was quite an experience because I had sufficient information from. Um, I was given a whole treasure trove of documents from a, a wonderful guy named Paul Truster. He's just a lawyer who's been fascinated by this case because he grew up in the neighborhood where it took place. He had this entire plastic tub of government documents, court documents, police documents, and I could have written the entire book based on that along with media reports, but I felt it needed a bit of a more human touch. So I did these interviews, and it really did bring out the story because I was able to get some more information of like, um, what was it like growing up as the uh, son of this bank robber? and I could actually talk to his son. And the most pertinent inter interviews I did was with Jack Blank's son, Stanley, who was 14 years old when his father's killed. His parents go to the bank to uh, prepare for a family trip, and the next thing you know, he hears all these gunshots, and these cops show up in, at his house to tell him, well, your father's been killed. And you could still sense this sort of rage coming from him, even at, I think he's like 70 now or so. And that, I think, really added a human element to this book, that it wasn't just this wacky vigilante named Jack Blank. This is a real human person who thought he was doing something heroic. 
at the same time, having interviewed the Beetle Bandit's son, you realize that the Beetle Bandit wasn't just this cardboard villain. He was a real person who had obviously severe issues. Um, so I was very pleased to be able to talk to all these people. And I spoke to the accountant who underloaded the pistol, Carmen Blank, who um, uh, sub uh, sadly died shortly after I spoke to him. Um, but it was quite amazing talking to this guy. He was a guy who also, uh, at one point, he was shooting at the Beetle Bandits. And I interviewed him. And I interviewed people who witnessed this gunfight. So that was... That was the one advantage of doing something that's historical, but within living historical memory, because yeah. it was 1964, so there's still people alive who experience this firsthand. Slava, again, your book, it comes from a different perspective, because mm -hmm. it is it is your story. And I found it fascinating talking to you just before we uh, came on stage, talking about being in prison and, and what it was like. So run me through what it was like when I think of going to prison, I think of I Oz, you. I think sure, of, sure, sure. of uh, Rikers Island, I think of things like that. Your experience was a little different than that, but it's fascinating. All right, let me take you through it. Let's say you leave here right now, you get arrested. Yep. Okay. So they're going to take you down and they're going to help you see a judge and hopefully you get bail. You have to wait out, whatever. Then you actually go to jail. I get sentenced. Now you're going to provincial jail at first. Provincial jail is the Don. It's Toronto South, East, Penetanguishene. These are all run by the province. And this is orange jumpsuits, no sharp edges. Everything is in an adult lunchable. It's exactly what you think jail is. It's like if you watch A&E 60 Days In, yeah, yeah. which was also a big yeah. show in jail because we do have TV. Yeah. Um, it was actually not good for some people who looked like cops because they were just being accused of filming 60 days. We won't get into that. So once you're in provincial jail, you're either awaiting your sentence because you've been deemed too dangerous to go back out into the community and uh, await your trial, or uh, you've been sentenced and you're waiting to get out of provincial jail. So if you get sentenced to two years less a day, you're spending the entire time in an orange jumpsuit. You're doing your whole time in provincial. And I knew guys from my bid who held it as a badge of honor that they did time in the dawn 20 some odd years ago. Mm. Once you get shipped out to federal, it's a whole new bag. If you've been sentenced to two years or more, you're going to federal institution. Federal has three levels, high, medium, and minimum security. If you've been sentenced to life, you have to do two years in uh, maximum security without question. And this is like jail, jail, you're locked up 23 hours a day. You have, uh, like you're in constant antagonism with the guards. Like you have to throw your feces on them if everybody's decided that that's what you're doing. It's just that level of it is absolute hell. And I'm thankful to not have had to do that. But everybody does start in medium to get assessed to where they're going. And medium is where you're able to get some clothes sent in, like personal effects, like sweatpants or shirts. You can get a, a TV, a fan, things like that sent in. But when you're walking around the institution, most of them are in Kingston. When you're walking around Kingston, everybody's just wearing jeans and a blue t-shirt. It's not really like you don't get the vibe that you're in prison. Um, but the fact is, the longer you're there, hopefully you're able to cascade down lower and lower to the point where everybody's in minimum, where I did a majority of my time. Now, minimum security is colloquially known as camp. There's no fences. You cook your own food. Uh, there's like a full kitchen so you can like chop vegetables. I became vegan while I was in jail. Like... And it kind of does describe the intention of what they wanted to do with the dawn, where you are in your room. It's not a cell. It's a room. There's no bathroom. That's the, the, uh, the difference. So you're in your room. And then once you wake up, yeah, you can go work on the farm. You can go. Uh, I, I worked on the farm. I worked in the slaughterhouse. I was a beekeeper for a little bit. But it is like an active type of institution where you're supposed to be there and actually doing things. 
um, granted, a lot of people who have been able to cascade down have only been able to do so because they're very old. So you're dealing with people who they're not even in the news because their thing happened before the days of Google, right? Mm-hmm. So you're really, t- and like that's where I met the guy from the Dirty Tricks gang because eventually you cascade down to the point where you don't even really treat it like jail. And a lot of those people, for them, that is the end result. Like they just want to be at minimum and kind of spend their days out there. And they're perfectly fine with the knowledge that they're probably not going to leave prison. And how was that different than what you imagined it was going to be? Because the idea when the judge says, you're going in, it must be terrifying. The problem is there's no pop culture that's ever been created that properly reflects the Canadian prison experience. Now, I understand Orange is the New Black is probably the closest you're going to get, but still we had way more freedom than they did. I actually only caught up on Orange is the New Black in jail because we had the box set DVDs in minimum security. That's where I also watched Sopranos for the first time. Good movie. Good show. Dragon Ball Z. Uh, Yeah, I was going to dress up. But but minimum security is, like I've I've said this before, uh, I think it's 80% of the way there when you're talking about criminal justice because you are giving people that opportunity to go live more or less uh, a normal life. It's like maybe... 40 acres you have your baseball diamond you have gardens like you can tend to a garden there's a gym i was benching 255 at one point (laughs) but um minimum security is kind of like a small town where everybody's trapped there and the populations are fairly low it's 170 to 200 people so you're not really like overwhelmed with too many people this is in medium it goes uh, in minimum in medium i think it's like 500 and then max is again 500 but there's like 18 guards to one person in a max wow yeah. Uh, do we have questions uh, from the audience for any of our panels? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'll repeat the question so everyone can hear. How do you decide? Essentially, the question is, how do you decide who you're going to write about? Um, Well, the Beatle Band kind of fell in my lap because this this chap I mentioned, Paul Truster, uh, who provided me the research material, he attended uh, a presentation I did about a totally different book. This is pre-COVID era when we still had presentations. And he sort of, you know, chatted with me after the, after the presentation and introduced himself and said, well, I might have a good story for you. And I was wary at first because I'm sure um, a lot of other crime writers can relate that we constantly get people contacting us. Oh, I've got the greatest crime story ever. This will just be amazing. And quite often it turns out to not be amazing or just be weird or (laughs) conspiracy theories about some nonsense. So I was polite, but, you know, okay, sure. We emailed each other a bit back and forth, and he he told me he had all this information. Uh, We met and had coffee. And basically his story was, was that he was fascinated by this case. He'd actually spoken to some of the people involved. Um, but he found that he didn't have the talent to write a book about it. He had tried and kind of failed. Uh, he was better at being a lawyer than he was at being a writer. So the kind of it was like he thought I was doing some other stuff that was good. Would you be interested in taking this on? And I did, and it worked out. Uh, and just prior to that, I'd written a book called The Boy 
on the Bicycle, which is about a wrongful conviction um, in Toronto from the 1950s that no one's ever heard of. It was kind of the Toronto version of the Stephen Truscott case. And in that case, the person who was wrongly convicted, Ron Moffat, actually emailed me. So the guy at the center of the book contacted me directly. So once you get a, a reputation or a name, people will start contacting you. Um, other times I've, like my next project that I'm working on, which I won't give huge amount of detail about, is something I completely came up with myself and ran it by the publisher and they liked it. And so I'm going forward with it. So it's a combination of things of how sometimes people approach you, sometimes you come up with an idea. Um, and other times, I, you know, Slava on this panel is writing about personal experience, um, which I could not do myself as I've never robbed a bank or anything like yeah. that so far. So it's a, it's a variety of different, uh, variety of different things. I've been a journalist. I was, I've been a journalist for 30 years and it's very similar to how you get your stories. Some of them you come up with yourself. Other times people tip you off about something. Any other questions from the audience? Yeah, go ahead. Why, why was the Dawn the only option that they had is essentially the question for Lorna. Well, the Dawn jail was, was the main jail in Toronto. So in smaller centers and other centers, there were other jails. Um, you know, the system there was that uh, Slava explained it, uh, you know, sort of quite, uh, quite well, that, that you had jails. So you had um, centers, the jails, where people with shorter sentences or people waiting uh, for, for a trial or waiting for, um, uh, for transfer to another uh, institution would go. But this, this, the main jail in Toronto was the Don Jail, and Toronto was a big center. So people were sent to the Don. Other questions? Yeah, go ahead. Slava. <laughs> Could you imagine your story being turned into a television show or a movie? This specific one? Or like, would I use the experiences I gained to like make works of fiction later on? So there is stuff that's happening with this. I don't know what we can talk about, but if you don't like reading, that's fine. You're going to be able to get this story <laughs> another way. Um, but with, with, yeah, with stuff like that, I mean, yeah, it's, now it's just a part of who I am, right? All these people that I've met, all these like individuals I've encountered are probably people who normal individuals who have just read about them would be terrified of. And here I am like eating a bagel with this guy who's killed three people. And really, he's just like a loser. Like, he's not, like, someone that I would be, like, scared of. I'm just, like, this guy, like, reminds me of, like, some guy who, like, hung out in his garage too much when I was a kid in Barry. Right. You know that guy who, like, hangs out in his garage because he, like, hates his wife? And then, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, sometimes that guy snaps and kills his wife and goes to jail. And now you're having a bagel with him in 2022 trying to explain what TikTok is. <laughs> and is that the big takeaway is that... Because I think one of the things about true crime and writing about true crime is you don't want to glamorize the crime. You don't really particularly want to uh, make these criminals into folk heroes. 
Uh, sure. And your experience sure. seems to suggest that most of them that you've met, are, or many of them, are far from that. Yeah, I feel like sometimes crime is politicized, right? That's just the nature of it. And depending on, you know, like, I don't know how many of you guys are from Toronto, but in 2004, there was that year of the gun, right? Mm -hmm. And we had Jane Kriba, who was the face of that, that terrible shooting in Foot Locker. 2018, our gun crime rates were as high as 2004, but we just didn't have, exactly, some people would be surprised to hear that because it wasn't politicized in the same way. And because the face of that was not an attractive blonde girl named Jane Kriba, it was Smoke Dog, an aspiring rapper who got gunned down in front of the Rivoli. So crime is political. Like there's no way you can kind of shake that, but it's just to what ends is it being used? What agenda is it really promoting? And unfortunately, a lot of the people who are being made into folk heroes or folk devils are just normal guys like anybody else who just made a terrible decision at one point in their life. That is all the time we have. Thank you so much uh, to my panelists, Lorna Poplak, Nate Henley, and Slava Pastek. Uh, I'm Richard Krauss. Thanks for uh, joining us. Thank you for listening to this panel discussion. If you'd like to learn more about any of the authors or books discussed in this panel, visit dundurn.com.